together. Matthew 28, verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Beloved Church of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the Great Commission is the risen Christ's marching orders for the church and one of the most well-known texts of the Scriptures. And since the details of the interpretation of this text can influence the approach and the emphases of the church of Jesus Christ, it's very important that we interpret the words correctly, that we do not overemphasize some words or phrases from the others in their context. We see this happen, for example, when people look at this text and they emphasize the word go to defend a foreign missions only approach. Or they use the words make disciples to conclude that preaching must be secondary to relation-based discipling. Or when people turn uh, point to the order of the verbs in verse 19 to say that churches can baptize people indiscriminately and then just teach them later. And in order that we do not take one part of Christ's words out of context, to serve our purposes, it's necessary then to understand when Jesus said these words, to whom he addressed them, and exactly what he said as it relates to all his teaching and work. Jesus spoke these words at a particular time in the history of redemption. After he had risen from the dead and appeared to many people, and while he was talking with his disciples at the scheduled meeting in the hills of Galilee. With Judas now dead, the remaining 11 disciples whom Jesus chose for himself represent the ongoing leadership of the church. Rather than passing on lies about the empty tomb like the, the guard did in the verses just before our text, the guard and the Jewish leaders that Rather than spreading lies, the eleven obeyed their Lord and went to meet him at the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And Matthew tells us that when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now Matthew doesn't tell us whether it was the, uh, the disciples themselves or others who were with them who were doubting. Nor does he tell us whether they were doubting his resurrection or where they were hesitating because they weren't really sure that it was Jesus that they were seeing. Or maybe they were wavering because they didn't know what to do at that particular moment. Whatever the case may be, Matthew does make it clear that Jesus spoke to the eleven and he leaves no doubt 
about what Jesus said. Jesus addressed the leadership of the church at that time, that point in the history of redemption, to teach them what his church would do and how they were going to do it after he had risen and, and ascended. The Great Commission then is not in the first place a specific command to individuals, to, to you and to me, but it is in the first place a revelation of how God would continue to bring about his plan of salvation. It is comparable to the mandate that God gave to Adam and Eve in paradise, providing general instruction for God's people that then must be carried out by cooperating members of Christ's church in different ways. After he had risen from the dead, Jesus addressed the leaders of the New Testament church to claim his authority, to command the church to action, and to comfort them with a promise. And I preach to you this gospel under the following theme, Christ wants his church to be ambassadors in all nations. We'll see that Christ's ambassadors have his universal authority, have his gracious command, and have his ongoing presence. If you look at your text, you see that Jesus came to them. It's verse 18. Matthew tells us that Jesus came to the eleven. He was walking closer to them so that they could see that it was their risen Lord in the flesh who was making the triumphant declaration, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In the Old Testament, the complete victory of the Son of God was promised and prophesied. In the Psalms, Psalm 2, for example. In the prophets, you can think of Daniel 7, verse 14. And when Jesus was on earth, he finished off the work that needed to be completed by the one who would fulfill all righteousness. The authority that Jesus had displayed when he was on earth over sickness and over death, over the wind and over the waves, over the devil and the demons, now belong to Jesus Christ as a permanent gift that no one could take away. He died for our sins, and after he rose from the dead, he was able to publicly declare for the first time that his authority was completely established. The Son of God, who was at the same time, who is at the same time, a human being like one of us, was exalted and given the name that is above every name. And he is Lord, truly Lord. Although there remain enemies to be destroyed, you can read about that in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 24 to 26. Jesus Christ truly is the king of an unshakable kingdom. And Christ Jesus used the words, all authority. That means that every creature and every created thing is put in subjection to him. When we were reading Colossians, you noticed how many times it was all things, all things, all things. And Paul then says in Colossians 1 verse 18 that Christ is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Christ Jesus stood before his disciples 
and announce that he is the preeminent one, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Christ Jesus' authority that was given to him after his resurrection victory changes the situation of the church forever after. Although we as a congregation at this time and, and as we were praying together, maybe that was in your mind, we're, we're suffering many things at this time. Michelle's withdrawal, Michael in the hospital, Joe and, and little Bowden and also Joel's friends, Alma and Wilma taken to the Lord, Jack DeHass's multiple myelomas back, Alice in the hospital, diseases, mental disorders, brokenness, restrictions, frustration. All these things are happening in a context where our Lord Jesus Christ has all authority in heaven and on earth. This is why even in the midst of hardship, Paul can so confidently declare in Romans 8 verse 28 that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Christ has all authority so we can know that all things work for good. If God is for us, who can be against us? No one can be against us. No one can condemn us. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. You remember Romans 8, not, not tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, not death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. Hear the comforting words of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. See the extent of his authority and his kingdom. See how Christ Jesus restores us to the life that God had originally created for his glory. And if you look closely at Romans 8, you will notice that the all things of Romans 8 verse 28 returns in Romans 8 verse 32 as the gift of God that you receive in Jesus Christ. Christ has received all authority in heaven and earth. He makes sure that all things work together for your good and he has given you all things. Christ's universal authority not only comforts the church in her suffering but also empowers the church in her task and calling in the world. The Lord Jesus connects his authority to the church with the word therefore in verse 19. His authority has consequences for us, for you, and for me. Jesus promises in John 14, verse 12, that whoever believes in him will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I go to the Father. Whoever wrote the summary recorded in Mark 16, verses 17 to 18, gathered together the evidence of these promised signs, reminding us of how Christ's authority was manifest in the church when the apostles drove out demons, spoke in tongues, picked up serpents without suffering ill effects from their poison, and healed the sick. 
Hebrews 11 teaches that Christ's power and authority was manifest in the lives of believers who put their trust in him. Hebrews 11, verse 33 to 34, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Christ's universal authority has marvelous consequences in our lives. And as ambassadors, we can rely on His power to sustain us, even through the most difficult suffering. We see how that initial statement of our Lord Jesus Christ makes the following command conceivable, something that we can understand as, as possible. Do we have that confidence? Do we see our Lord as that one with universal authority, the one who gives us a passport to, to any place? The word therefore in verse 19 also reveals that Christ has received his universal authority for a purpose that includes the church. Now God's plan, already announced in the Old Testament, is able to be carried to the next stage. And Jesus reveals that he wants his church, backed by his universal authority, to follow his orders. We see this gracious command. If you look at verse 19... You see the command of our Lord, 19 and and the beginning part of verse 20. And the main verb in this command for the 11, for the leadership, is make disciples of all nations. Now at first glance, that appears to mean that Jesus' command will not have been obeyed until all nations were followers of Jesus Christ. However, when we remember that even one of Jesus' own disciples betrayed him, that Jesus taught that though many were called, few were chosen, and that only God himself can make a person convert to the Christian faith and become a disciple, we quickly see that Jesus is not telling the church to force everybody in every nation to just call themselves Christians. No human being can make another human being into a true believer and disciple of Jesus Christ. Jesus' instruction in our text is not instruction given to the Holy Spirit, but it's instruction given to the leaders of the church on earth. And it's focused on the church's responsibility in the process that God uses to bring people to himself. When Christ commanded the church to make other people disciples, that means that we are to instruct them as a teacher would instruct students. The sense of his command to make disciples is to make all the nations your attentive listening class so that you can announce to them who Jesus is. In the Great Commission, Jesus told the church leaders to get an audience or of pupils, get an audience of learners, 
and speak to them with the goal of giving them the opportunity to follow Christ and be part of his kingdom. Call people to hear. Go tell it to them on the mountains. Bring that offer of the gospel to all people. Be the voice of one calling in the wilderness. At the end of of Luke, the Lord Jesus explains that it is written in the scriptures that the church should proclaim repentance for the forgiveness of sins in Christ's name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. That was the display text as you walked in and you could see the parallel instruction to Matthew. The summary of the church's response to Jesus' resurrection that you can find in many English Bibles in Mark 16 verse 15 interprets Jesus' words to be go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to all to the whole creation. And as a result of this proclamation, this making an audience of of learners and pupils, the Holy Spirit will gather for himself true followers or disciples of Jesus Christ in and from all nations. The gospel of Christ's victory is a gospel that needs to go out beyond Jerusalem and the Jews. For Christ's blood is able to cover over the weaknesses and the, and the sins of whoever believes in him, wherever they may live. Geography is no longer a part of, of the question. Since Jesus was talking to 11 church leaders in Galilee, in a particular place on a hill in Galilee, such a broad command needed to be accompanied with the adverbial, the describing phrase, going out. He says, going out, make disciples of, of all nations. It's basically a command to, to go rather than just stay there in Galilee. Go rather than just look after your own. And since Christ has authority in the entire universe... His church, his body, has authority to go in his name to any place, anywhere in the world, to preach the gospel, to speak the truth as indiscriminately as a sower casting a seed upon the fields. We are obeying his command when we are outward looking, when we look outward and seek to reach places where the gospel needs to be proclaimed, whether that's in our city or in our our province or in our country or in other places in the world. And just like Paul, who made plans before he went out, even as he was following the Spirit's direction on the way, so also today Christ wants his church, his ambassadors with the passport of authority from the universal king, to continue to converse with with faithful churches around us in every place, to to locate the unchurched as we work together on a global mission planning strategy. And Mark 16, verse 16, gives the general rule that as the church goes out in obedience to Christ's gracious command, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And when the eleven went out and proclaimed the gospel, they would see that many would turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. 
1 Thessalonians 1, verse 9. And so, baptizing and teaching would be a part of that calling of, of making disciples of all nations. And Jesus' teaching about baptism urges the church to bring people into the, the realm of the work of the triune God using the visible sign and seal of water. And those who are then distinguished by baptism from unbelievers because of their faith or their parents' confession are then to be taught to observe all that Christ commanded his disciples. All that Christ commanded his disciples. We're, we're reminded of the Lord's Sermon on the Mount, which the Lord is teaching the church what it looks like to be a citizen of the kingdom of God, where he outlines in the blessed statements or the Beatitudes how believers will mold their lives and shape their hearts in accordance with the Ten Commandments. That's the, the teaching the church gives to those who are baptized. The church is to be busy with that ongoing preaching, teaching, and discipline that guides God's people in their redeemed life. And by God's grace, they may do this while with the promise that Jesus is present with us. Christ ambassadors have Christ's ongoing presence. Now as we all know from experience, it's not easy to go and to leave our comfort zone, to tell others about Christ's victory over sin and death. This world is hostile to that good message. Jesus warned us that if they, they treated the teacher with such violence, how much more his followers. To move beyond the echo chambers of affirmation in our workplaces and on social media and in our own neighborhoods can result in often hostile opposition, sometimes even danger. And although we do this work with the, the best intentions, we do it because we're, we're driven by, by love and compassion with the authority of the eternal King Himself and convinced that we have the best news that anyone would possibly want to hear. Our gracious message of forgiveness of sins and eternal peace with the Creator of heaven and earth. It's not always received well, it's not always well received. And many of us feel that we are unable to face this confrontation in our lives. And the Lord understands this. That's why he gives the mission to the church as a whole. It's a mandate given to churches. And in the same way that not everyone is able to fulfill the mandate to get married and have children, so there are people in the church who are not in a position to go out themselves and talk to others about the Christian faith. We can think of, we can just think, for example, of we don't leave evangelizing to, to children or to people who are still learning the gospel, yet they are fully members of Christ's church who receive the same mandate. And then we see that this is a responsibility that we share as a church. And in that responsibility, we all have different gifts and opportunities. 
But this doesn't take away from the fact that Christ has still commanded his body to go out and make disciples. And so we, we could say, however we, we organize it, at the end of the day, making disciples is still something that we as a church are responsible for. Now the disciples who first received this mission were the pioneers. They were breaking out into a Jewish and pagan world that had never even heard of Jesus Christ. These brothers of ours, they needed to first go and proclaim the gospel and then follow it up with baptism and ongoing teaching. And since we here, Emmanuel, since we're an established church, we will find that the two stages of the Great Commission are happening simultaneously at the same time and not always in the same order as we read in our text today. We baptize children of believers who are already members of of Christ's body and we teach them to observe all that our Lord has commanded. This is the work we're very focused on. Regular preaching, home devotions, Bible studies, formal teaching, family, uh, family pastoral and diaconal visits. They attest to our understanding of this work of baptizing and and instructing and all that God has commanded. And the Lord has also given our congregation the desire to reach out to the unchurched, blessed with an active home mission committee that provides opportunities and programs for those who are more bold and also for those who are more shy. We continue to pray for the work of a full-time uh, for, for, for the work of the Edmonton Mission Board and a full-time outreach worker. And although recent failures may be discouraging, and as I can add a, a personal note as an ex-missionary, when you deal with discouragements, just all I can say is get used to it. But we find great comfort in Jesus' reminder. It's a reminder. And behold, look, see, I am with you always even to the end of the age. In other commission passages, the Lord revealed that He would be with His church as His church is expanding by His Holy Spirit who would guide them in all truth. When we go out trusting in His authority, we will always find this to be true. He is with us. Every time the gospel shines through us, God's Word and Spirit guides our work. The Good Shepherd, Jesus Christ, speaks to the world through the preaching and through the sacraments. The Holy Spirit is changing hearts, and the Father in Heaven protects us from falling away in the midst of hardships. And so as Christ's church, you begin your mission with His presence. You will always have His presence with you all the days, and He will still be with you at the end of the age. And although the Lord Jesus was reminding the church of his promise to be with them in the context of that command to make disciples of all nations, it's a promise and a gracious comfort that we can apply in many situations in our lives. And Matthew wants us to, to have that as a theme in our hearts, that Emmanuel theme in our hearts. He begins his gospel. Matthew begins his gospel with the rich Old Testament promise of God's ongoing presence when he reminds us that Jesus Christ, the Savior born in Bethlehem, is Emmanuel, 
which means God with us. And then gospel, Matthew ends his gospel with the same theme. And Jesus uses the word behold. It's a call to see, to, to remember his exalted position in all that we do. And since our Lord Jesus is talking about things that, that would happen in the future, we would have expected him to say, whatever you face, don't worry, I will be with you. It's striking then to read that Jesus uses the present tense in a very emphatic way. To translate it just strictly, literally, it's, he says, as for me, I am with you. It reminds us of Exodus 3. When the Lord revealed his name as I am who I am and used the forms that allow for the past, the present, and the future. And so the Lord Jesus reminds us that he too is eternal. I who am the great I am, I am with you always. And as a church then we are always equipped because we belong. To the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as citizens of this eternal kingdom. Jesus said he is with us to the end of the age. And not just till the end of your life on earth. He is with you even on the other side of, of the grave. There's nothing to fear. He is with you until he returns again and restores all things. And, and the truth is visible. He is with you forever. And as your pastor in this time of great hardships and great sorrows and struggles, I urge you to lift your eyes to the triune God in whose name you are baptized, for he has promised to be with you. In your sorrow, in your stress, in your struggles with your own weaknesses, and the weaknesses you see in others, when your heart hurts, when your mind is exhausted, pray that you may experience that nearness he promised. Behold, he is with you. Remember the covenant promises that were signed and sealed for you in baptism. Think of the name of your congregation. Think of the name of your church, Emmanuel. And behold, the one with all authority in heaven and on earth, Jesus Christ, your Savior and Lord, who called you to be his ambassadors in this world through the ups and through the downs of life. Yes, he is with you always to the end of the age. Amen.